Hey, thanks for tuning in to the Meadowview Weekly Sermon Podcast. We're a church who seeks to grow in Christ, gather in community, and go in obedience to the Great Commission. All right, good morning, church. All right, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Mark chapter 13. If uh, you're new with us, we, we just kind of go through uh, books of the Bible and uh, take them verse by verse. And so this morning, we've got to uh, Mark chapter 13, and we're kind of coming in on the end. We've been in Mark since March, and uh, it's been a while. I mean, we've just kind of taken it bit by bit, and uh, we're kind of going to be finishing it up sometime in the next few weeks in the month, and so I'm excited about that. Uh, some things are just difficult to explain. Some things are hard to understand, and uh, one of those things is how can you be driving to church on a beautiful morning like this and uh, be admiring the countryside, and then out of nowhere, a turkey take out one of your side mirrors on your truck? I mean, some things are just hard to explain. Like, how did that happen this morning? So that's how my morning started off. Some things are uh, difficult to explain. Maybe, maybe for you, it's math. Maybe math is hard to explain. I can remember the anxiety and the frustration that I felt when I sat down to take the ACT and got to the math portion. And uh, back then, you couldn't use your calculator. You had to show your work, which is awful, right? I just wanted to pick A, B, C, or D. Uh, You know, some things are super difficult to understand. and, And even some, they say, are impossible to understand. This math equation right here, this mathematical equation, if you want to sound, uh, you know, smart, uh, they said was unsolvable, and it actually took 10 years for these mathematicians to solve this problem that's used to understand quantum field theories. How many of you know what quantum field theories are? Exactly. Some things are just hard to understand, and when we get to this chapter, I'm going to be honest with you, this is one of those chapters that theologians have, have wrestled with. It is hard to understand because there's so many different views on what is really being meant here. And it's, it's what's called the Olivet Discourse. And it's called the Olivet Discourse because Jesus is on the Mount of Olives. He's left the temple. They've been in the temple for a few days. You know, he's flipping over tables. He's teaching. He's being uh, confronted by all these religious leaders. As they're exiting the temple, they walk across into the Mount of Olives and they look back at the temple. And so this is kind of where this takes place. And there's this thought that this... Uh, is the doctrine of last things, or eschatology, if you want to take down a word that you learn in seminary. That was what that is. So eschatology. So it's very difficult to explain. I'll tell you why, because there's three main thoughts of what's happening in this chapter, and we're going to kind of cover them pretty quick. Many believe that Jesus is only addressing the judgment of Israel and the destruction of Jerusalem, which took place in 70 AD. So one theory is, when you, when you read through this whole chapter, all of these things that Jesus says are about to take place within the next 40 years by 70 AD, when we know that the Romans came in and, and destroyed the temple. The other one is that others believe that he's predicting the tribulation and end times, the end of the age. And so every time we talk about that, people are like, ooh, ah, what's it going to be like? What's going to happen in the end? And that's exactly what the disciples say in this chapter. They're like, Jesus, tell us what it'll be like. Tell us what's going to happen at the end. And then the last one is this, that some believe that this, is a sec- that this section follows the pattern of Old Testament prophecy patterns, meaning that it's a picture view of things to come, including both events. So the best way for me to describe this is to give you a picture, a picture to look at. And so uh, this picture here, if I were to ask you to describe it, what's the first thing that pops out to you? Some of you are going to say the sunrise or sunset. We don't know what that is, right? Some of you are going to say the mountains. Some of you are going to say the path. Some of you are going to say the trees and the water, the lakes. Some of you are going to say the grass. You're going to say all these different things that you see. 
But if you were to walk that path, you're going to experience different things in that picture as you go throughout time. And so if this is a picture of things to come, it could be a picture of things to come, and they may not be in succinct order. And so what we need to do is look and see what is Jesus really talking about. John Grasmick says this, Jesus predicted the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in verse 13 too, which prompted the disciples to inquire about the timing of these things, verse 4. Apparently, they associated the destruction of the temple with the end of the age, according to Matthew 24, 3. In reply, Jesus skillfully wove together into a unified discourse a prophetic scene involving two perspectives. A, the near event, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, and B, the far event, the coming of the Son of Man in the clouds with power and glory. The former local event was the front runner for the latter universal event. Regardless, really, of what you think or how you interpret Scripture, there's something that you need to agree upon. And it's the fact that Jesus says this in verses 30 and 31. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until these things take place. Jesus is talking to the disciples. And he's talking about this generation. Then he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. God's words are true. They're life. Jesus predicts both that things are going to happen for this generation and that there will be an end. Revelation 21.1 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. There is an end to come, and Jesus uses terminology here that is pretty much like what Isaiah says when he's prophesying about the destruction of the first temple, Solomon's temple. In Isaiah 13, 6 through 10, Well, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble, and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark as it is rising, and the moon will not shed its light. These are difficult things to understand, difficult things to teach, and as someone who desperately wants to teach God's word faithfully and truthfully and Christ-centered, these are difficult things. And so let's pray that God will give us guidance and wisdom this morning. Father, we do thank you for your word. It is true. Your words reign eternal. God, we can lean upon your words. We know that you are God in the flesh and the words that you said were true. Give us understanding. Give us the power and the presence of your spirit to lead and to guide our lives so that we would live as people of the truth. This morning, help us to see you in a clear light. In Christ's name, amen. First thing I want you to see this morning is the prediction from Christ. The prediction. Mark chapter 13, starting in verse 1 through 8. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Verse 3. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be and what 
will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished. And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. Verse 7. And when you hear the wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. As we've looked at over the last few weeks, Jesus has been in the temple. And this is Herod's temple. It's a magnificent temple. Uh, We know from uh, history that it covered about 35 acres of land. This is a massive structure. It stood about 150 feet high, and so did its temple walls. And so as the disciples are leaving, after they've spent some time here, and Jesus has been teaching in the temple, they look and they say, look at this magnificent building. Look at these magnificent stones. Look at how much craftsmanship has gone into this. They've been working on this for years, and at this point, it's still not even completed. They said that the top of it was filled with gold. It was gold-plated, and the sun would shine on it, and it would blind you if you looked at it. It was, it was marvelous. And so they're talking about this, and Jesus says, Look, not a stone here will be left. Josephus, the historian of that time that we get a lot of information from, tells us that some of these stones made up in the temple were 60 feet long, 11 feet high, and 8 feet deep. These are massive stones, each weighing more than 200,000 pounds. This is a crazy thought that they're looking at this and they're thinking there's no way this will ever be destroyed. This is massive. And Jesus said, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And then in verse 8, he says, For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines. Jesus is beginning to tell these disciples, listen, these are things you need to look for. There's going to be earthquakes. There's going to be famines. There's going to be nation against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There's going to be rumors of wars. There's going to be people who show up that say they're me. They're not me. You need to be aware of these things. They're all leading towards the end. Well, we know that in this generation that several things took place. A tremendous earthquake hit and leveled Pompeii in the year 63. In the year 66 AD, the the Jews rebelled against the Roman oppressors. In response, Emperor Nero dispatched an army under the generalship of Vespasian to restore order. And so he began in the northern area and he began to, to work his way towards Jerusalem. And so there would have been rumors of wars and things that are going on, nation against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There's earthquakes taking place. And then in 68, Titus took over. He took over the assault on Jerusalem, and he determined to starve them to death, to starve them out of the city. So he closed up the walls, kept all the food from coming in. The historian Josephus talks about this, and he said parents resorted to cannibalism of their own children. He actually tells a story of a woman who killed and roasted and ate her nursing baby. And many Jews were taken into slavery while others were caught and butchered and killed on the spot, regardless of their gender, and they were thrown into piles in the middle of the city. Jesus says, hey, let me warn you. There's some things that are coming that you need to be aware of, and you're going to see the birth pains. You're going to see earthquakes. There's going to be famines. There's going to be things taking place. You need to be aware because judgment is coming All of this ended with the Roman soldiers coming in and totally burning the city, robbing the temple of its gold, the gold that had melted down between the cracks of the stone. So in order to get the gold out, they had to dismantle the entire 
temple. Not one stone will be left on top of another. They, they destroyed it down, and what's left is what we know as the Wailing Wall. Basically, what is happening here is Jesus is warning this generation that tribulation is coming and destruction of the temple is coming because they rejected him as Lord. There's, there's going to be judgment. Jesus is predicting that judgment is coming because of the corruption of sin and the rejection of Jesus. So I tell you all of these history lessons to, you know, just to let you know what's really kind of going on here, to let you know that there is judgment upon sin and the rejection of Jesus, not just then, but now. There is a rejection of Jesus that's taking place in our culture. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 1, 18 through 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse." I heard one pastor talk about this suppression of the truth. He said it's, it's where you take a truth from God's word and you take a lie from the culture. And they, they don't agree with one another. And so you're standing there and you have to decide, am I going to believe the truth or am I going to believe this lie? And when the lie seems way more you know, attractive than the truth of what you want to do in your life, you take the truth and you suppress it. You hold it underwater until you drown it out. Because you don't want to feel guilty anymore. You don't want it raising its head. It does, you don't want there to be any conviction in your life. And so you suppress the truth until it is completely dead to you. That's not my truth. My truth is now this. There is a culture in a world right now that is taking the truth of God's word and they're holding it underwater and suppressing it. And it's one thing after, after another. So you begin to suppress this truth of God's word, then what's next? then what's next? Then what's next? And here's what Jesus says. Look, those who suppress the truth, those that walk away from Christ and deny Christ, the wrath of God is still on them. But for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, the wrath of God has been placed on him on the cross. And so therefore we are free. Isn't that amazing? The wrath of God, we, we are under the wrath of God if we are in sin. There's no escape of it. But those who are in Christ Jesus have been covered. He was the propitiation is what God's word would say. He paid the price for us so that we are no longer under God's wrath. Therefore, we should worship him. But there's a world that doesn't. As he was making his way into the city, the triumphal entry this week, as we're talking about this, in Luke's gospel, he says, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. The people are worshiping him and they're like, hey, you need to stop these people from doing this. And he's like, look, if they don't worship, the stones will cry out. The stones of the temple would be destroyed. Creation is crying out for truth because culture is suppressing the truth. Let me tell you something. The things that we see taking place in the world today, it doesn't mean the end is here. It means that these are birth pains. These are, these are things that are happening in the world because the creation of God's world is crying out that Jesus is Lord and the culture is suppressing the truth. This is what we see taking place. Romans 8, 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth. Until now, the world is crying out. The world, a sinful world, is under God's judgment. Verses 14 through 16, verse 23, let's jump down. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not to be, let the reader understand. I think you have to put let the reader understand because this is hard to understand. 
Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the ones, the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. Verse 23, but be on guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. The abomination of desolation, let the reader understand, is difficult to understand. What we want to do is we want to see the same language that pops up in the prophet of Daniel. And Daniel says this in 926, and after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and the end there will be war. Desolations are decreed. This term, with the term abomination of desolation, there's a general agreement this refers to some sort of pagan desecration of the temple. Now, many believe that this took place during the Maccabean revolt when they slaughtered a pig in the Holy of Holies and erected, I believe, a statue of Zeus where it ought not be. But then Jesus refers to this, and it points back to the fact that there is going to be a desolation. There's going to be a destruction of the temple that ought not be. And the historian Josephus, who was actually uh, used by the Romans during this time, who tried to plead with his, his uh, countrymen to not re- revolt against Rome, believes that this is what was described in Daniel. The historian Josephus believed that Titus's conquest and destruction of the temple and the city in 70 AD fulfilled Daniel's prophecy. Joseph he goes on to tell us that Josephus goes on to tell us that Jerusalem was packed with people fleeing from the countryside and the villages. When Jerusalem fell to the Romans, 1.1 million Jews were slaughtered inside the city. However, the Christians had fled to the mountains. So Jesus is saying, look, let me warn you, these are things that you need to pay attention to because the destruction's coming. There's going to be, there's going to be this end, and if you pay attention, don't, don't run to the fortified city like you would normally do. Run to the mountains because if you run to the fortified city, it's going to be taken. You're going to be slaughtered, and that's exactly what happened. So Jesus predicts all of this, and there's a lot there, and it's very difficult to understand. But there's some things that we see today that are carrying on. Number two, the persecution of Christians. The persecution of Christians, let's keep reading verse 9 through 13. But be on guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. Verse 11. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his children. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus then talks about the persecution of believers. We know from reading throughout the rest of the New Testament, the prediction of the persecution was fulfilled in the book of Acts but it's also fulfilled in the lives of many Christians today. Next week is, I was reminded of this, next week is the National Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. There there are brothers and sisters throughout this world that face death daily because of their faith in Jesus Christ. The first church, the early Christians, they faced persecution and they, they preached the gospel in Acts 4, 1 through 3, P- 
Peter and John were speaking to the people and the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and they put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. The council, they stood before them. And in Acts 26, 26 through 29, Paul, he gets to stand before King Agrippa. For the king knows all about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things had escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am except for these chains. Jesus predict, he predicted these things would take place, but he also talked about those that would be persecuted, that they would stand before kings and councils because the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. This is something for us to understand, not, not just in, in church history, but for us today, that the gospel, there's a word there, by Jesus, must. It must be proclaimed to all nations. And if it must be proclaimed, then who must proclaim it? Christians, believers in Jesus Christ that don't shrink back from persecution, but believe that there is a call upon their life to share the good news because Jesus will return. There is wrath on sin for those who suppress the truth. So the presence of persecution does not relieve the church, us, of its or our missional responsibility. The persecution that we face does not relieve us of the responsibility that's put on our lives. Just like that, the presence of a pandemic does not relieve the church, us, of its, of its or our missional responsibility. Just because there's a pandemic does not mean that we stop being a voice to all nations. It doesn't mean that the church shuts down. It means that we boldly proclaim the gospel because it's the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, that the world will cry out. There will be birth pains. There will be earthquakes and famines and wars and rumors of wars. There will be all of these things that take place because Jesus needs to be exalted. And so the church is called to go out and preach the good news to all nations. And we don't stop because of some pandemic. Should get an amen for that one, right? Everyone online just turned me off, right? (laughs) A pandemic does not stop us. The presence of political upheaval and polarization does not relieve the church of its or our missional responsibility. Just because you will be polarized if you speak up for Jesus Christ does not mean that you stop. Just because you'll be called a bigot or someone who has hate speech does not mean that you stop speaking about the love of Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus said, no matter what the circumstances, the gospel must be proclaimed to all nations. No matter where we are in this world and what is going on around us, the gospel must be proclaimed. This is why Peter would say in 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You have been called. You have been set apart. You're a holy priesthood. You're a set-apart nation. You are a people of his own possession to proclaim the excellencies of God, to proclaim the gospel to all nations. And it will cost you. 
And it might even cost you relationships with people in your own family. Jesus says this, and brother will deliver brother over to death and father to his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Church, let me tell you something. If you continue to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to a world that wants nothing to do with them, you will be hated for it. So buckle up, right? Get ready. You see, if you come from a Muslim family, you might be rejected by your family and literally killed for choosing Jesus. This is what we hear out of the the Middle East all the time. But also, if you're not promoting moral reform, the moral reform that our nation is pushing, you might be called a bigot. You might be hated. The idea that you're either with us or you're against us is getting closer to home because many of us have been separated by it in our home. We have brothers and sisters who think differently than us, that no no longer want to talk to us about God. We have parents or children that have chosen to suppress the truth and now want nothing to do with you in your own home. The persecution is coming, but we are called to proclaim the gospel to all nations. We must proclaimed to all nations. John Piper puts it this way, if we as the church are disobedient, it is not ultimately the cause of God and the cause of the world missions that we'll lose, we will lose. We miss out on what God's purpose is for our life. God's counsel will stand and he will accomplish all his purpose. His triumph is never in question, only our participation in it or incalculable loss. We can be drunk with private concerns and indifferent to the great enterprise of world evangelization but God will simply pass over us to do his great work while we shrivel up in our little land of comfort. All believers are called to missions. All believers. Charles Spurgeon says this, maybe this could be the way that we view the world and our community and our friends and our coworkers. If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, Let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let let not one go unwarned or unprayed for. Am I too comfortable in my Christianity to care about the lost around me? Am I too concerned about persecution, pandemics, and political correctness to share Christ? Am I... Or am I going to be someone who wraps my arms around a sinner and pleads with them to come to Jesus Christ? Pleads with them. Don't go down this road. There's one who desperately loves you, who paid the price of God's wrath on your behalf. Jesus talks about the persecution. He predicts what's going to happen, and he says, be prepared. The preparedness of Christ's return. Let's read. Let me get the tears out of my eyes so I can see my words here. And let me hold it out far enough so I can see it because I'm over 40. But in those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be fallen from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Sounds like what Isaiah said when we read it earlier. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then... 
He will send out angels to gather the elect from the four winds, from the, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Verse 28. From the fig tree, learn this lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when, these, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. This is what Jesus says, what I say to you, disciples, I say to all disciples, stay awake. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this when it comes to eschatology and end times, the great doctrine of the second advent or second coming has, in a sense, fallen into dispute because of this tendency on the part of some to be more interested in the how and the when of the second coming rather than in the fact of the second coming. If you think about it, it's true. There's way more emphasis on circumstances and what's happening in the world than the fact that Jesus is going to return. And eschatology, the doctrine of the last things, is Christ-focused, not circumstantial-focused. If the church will put their eyes on Jesus Christ and not the things that are happening around them, then we would live a life that preaches the gospel. We would proclaim it because it must be proclaimed to all nations. And so he says, I say this to all, stay awake. Church, stay awake. For some of you, stay awake, right? Because it's easy. It's so easy to be lulled into a sleep of self-sufficiency. It's so easy for us to live our life not dependent upon God and his grace and his mercy. We just go about our days putting food on our table, walking through the activities that we have to walk through, doing the things that we have to do. It's so easy to be lulled into a sleep of cultural acceptance, to be a church that wants to be accepted. It's so easy. Look, the first church looked nothing like the culture, and it radically changed the world. What if the church today looked nothing like the culture? Unfortunately, we've been lulled asleep into cultural acceptance. It's easy to be lulled into a sleep of accepted sin. Once you begin to want people to accept you, you begin to participate and act in the very same things that they participate in and act in. It's easy to be lulled into a sleep of Christian ambiguity. What I mean by that is it's easy to not be the salt and the light of the world. It's easy to look like everybody else. Are they a Christian or are they not a Christian? I, I'm not sure. I think they are. They're, you know, they're from the South. It's easy to be lulled into a sleep of self-centered Christianity where we put our comfort and our wants and our needs before the needs of the kingdom. John Bloom said it this way, you don't tell people about Jesus because you don't care about their eternal state. If you really want to get down to the fact that the reason why we don't evangelize is because we really don't care about people's eternity. 
We care about our now. Maybe if we cared more about the eternity of others than we do our comfort, we would say something. Maybe if we lived in light of his return, we would live in an urgency and with an eternal purpose. Maybe if we lived in light of the fact that he is coming, we would live differently. I read a story that a number of years ago, a Christian man and his wife were given the opportunity to move to the United States for religious freedoms and for safety, and they did so. And after living here for a period of time, however, the wife began to plead with her husband that they move back to their Islamic country of origin. Why? Why, her husband said. She told him, it's like there's a satanic lullaby playing here, and the Christians are asleep. I feel like I'm falling asleep. Please, let's go back, with which they did. The story contains the urgent message that we all must hear. She wanted to go back to a dangerous environment where there was persecution to escape what she recognized as a greater evil, the sleeping of Christianity. Ephesians, Paul would say in 5, 14 through 17, Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Church, I would tell you to wake up. Understand that the days are evil. Our days are limited. Church, make the most of the time that God's given you to proclaim the gospel to every nation, tribe, and tongue. To be a part of his kingdom that looks to be a witness in a wicked and sinful world. Paul would say in Romans 13, 11 through 14, Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. We're closer to salvation now than when we first believed. The night is not is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ to make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Church, wake up. Don't put on any provision for the flesh. Live in light of eternity. Live in light of his return. You see, we live knowing that he will return. Jesus said it. Jesus predicted the death, burial, and resurrection of himself, and it happened. Jesus predicted the destruction of the temple, that every stone would be taken down, and it happened. Jesus predicted earthquakes and famines, that people would come in his name, and it happened. Jesus predicted that there would be persecution of the saints, and it happened, and it still happens today. Jesus predicts that he will return. It will happen. So live in light of his return and therefore stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. The question we end with this morning is our we living right now in light of his return? Or will we be found asleep in our culturally comfortable Christianity?
Thanks for listening. It is our prayer that this message has helped you grow in your walk with Christ. Please subscribe to hear new sermons each week.